0: Tonight on Farage, I'll be asking after tax rises and the growth of the state, is the Conservative Party actually still Conservative? The channel crisis, Priti Patel and her French counterpart agree to nothing. Priti now says she's going to start turning the boats back. Is that really going to happen? And I'll be joined on Talking Pints by extreme adventurer Adrian Hayes. I first really noticed it in about 2005, when David Cameron took control of the Conservative Party along with George Osborne. And they decided that what they'd do is they'd take the Conservative Party into the centre ground, the already very crowded centre ground of British politics, and they effectively turned the Conservative Party into what I thought was a form of Social Democrat Party. So successful was it, they were even unable to gain a majority against the very unpopular Gordon Brown after many years of Labour rule. But nothing really could change them. Um, A whole list of social reforms, um, of commitments to higher foreign aid spending, um, all of which they believed was going to make them somehow more popular and appeal to a bigger audience. The Conservative Party then came to its senses and became Conservative again after an insurgency in British politics forced them much against their will, to accept that we had to leave the European Union. And they started then to get a patriotic vote, to reach out way beyond traditional conservatives and win, famously, those red wall seats. And those voters, and it doesn't really matter whether you're centre left or centre right, even if those terms mean that much anymore, those voters were patriotic, those voters believed in our independence, those voters believed absolutely in tighter border controls. And yet here we are. Here we are in 2021 with a Conservative Prime Minister doing very much the same thing that David Cameron tried to do before him. This isn't a Conservative party. This is, I think, Blue Labour doing their absolute best to steal Keir Starmer's clothes, to say, look, we are now the party of the NHS. We are the party uh, that will adopt the Green agenda. Now, look, this party's been around for 200 years. And, of course, there are social changes. There are economic changes. Parties, of course, have to move with the times. But there are some basic principles that underline conservatism. One of them is low taxation. To be the party of low taxation. To be the party that believes that by having lower taxes... You give people greater incentives and, actually, the Exchequer finishes up taking more money. But that doesn't seem to be the case with this Conservative Party. The Conservative Party against socialism has always believed the state should be kept as small as it possibly can. Yet, unbelievably, go back to 2004-05, when expenditure on health and social care was about 28% of our national spend, By the end of this parliament, it's going to be 40% of our national spend. So it's a Conservative Party wedded to green ideology and much of it to be done through government subsidy, as it's been for years. A Conservative Party that is putting up taxes on employees, employers and indeed savers and those running small companies that pay themselves In dividends. A Conservative Party that now appears to be a big state party and indeed very much a nanny state party. Very insistent that if 12 year olds want to overrule their parents on the issue of having the vaccine, that they absolutely should be able to do so. Now, I've been pretty sceptical about whether Boris was ever a Conservative for some years. Of course, I was delighted that he joined the Brexit cause. Whether he believed in it or not wasn't really the point. It was very vital that we had him on board. But what I thought was interesting overnight was that Boris's biggest supporter, in fact Boris's employer for several decades, the Daily Telegraph have really turned against him. Big leader columns, big op-ed articles saying that effectively he has betrayed the cause of conservatism and as ever, Matt, the Telegraph's wonderful cartoonist who nearly always managed to, manages to capture these things brilliantly, um, suggesting uh, that if anybody still thinks, then anybody still thinks that the Conservative Party is a party of low tax. And you can see here two women talking. My husband still thinks the Tories are a low tax party. It might be time for him to go into a home. Well, Matt always does that absolutely brilliantly. Now, there are others. Uh, the Times take a different view. The Times take a view that this is the Conservative Party in the wake of a pandemic and a massive increase in government spending. They take the view uh, that actually this is the pragmatic and correct thing to do. And indeed, uh, Sajid Javid appears in today's Times newspaper um, giving a big interview. Uh, there he is, sitting down. We are still the party of low taxes and Thatcher with a picture of Margaret Thatcher behind him. That, by the way, is the same Sajid Javid. It's the same Sajid Javid that we were always told was a lever but ended up voting Remain. So I'm not quite sure I'd ever believe anything, frankly, that he says. They've broken their promises in a manifesto. They've broken it on taxation. This is blue Labour. Now, the backbenches may not be like that. The party members in the country, I'm certain, are not like that. But it seems to me this Conservative Party is not Conservative in any way at all. That's my view. I'd like your views on that proposition. Let me know what you think. GBviews at GBnews.uk. Well, joining me to discuss this is Lord Robert Hayward, pollster and Conservative peer, who predicted Thatcher's election, the 2015 election and the 2016 referendum, which, uh, Lord Hayward... getting Getting 2016 right was quite a big call, wasn't it?
1: It was, and uh, I hesitated for quite a few hours uh, when I was doing the analysis. I thought it was clear. I did. I'd said two days earlier on Sky, excuse me mentioning them, but uh, that it was going to be a leave vote. Uh, and then on the night when I was on radio, I was waiting for it. Yes, it was a big call. Uh, and I was one of the very few analysts who actually said it would go leave. No, I remember you doing it, and
0: well done, you, for getting it right, because so many got it wrong. But
1: <laughs> the I that I'm making possibly here is that... might remind you got it wrong on, at 10 o'clock on the night, but, you know...
0: <laughs> well, yes, I know, when the polls close, it's an odd moment for all of us. But, look, you've it been is. involved with this party for decades. Uh, you know, this party is only ever successful when it's a small state party that believes in as lower taxes as are possible, that believes in enterprise, believes in the individual, and doesn't want the big state. Hasn't Boris Johnson, frankly, not just with what's happened in the last 48 hours, but with virtually everything he's done as Prime Minister, isn't he turning his back on the kind of conservatism that wins elections?
1: Uh, I would agree with you in terms of your overall analysis, re-Boris. He probably wants to spend far more, much more money than I would. Uh, but you identified two different arguments in your introduction, which I thought was very good, and I fall into the category of saying, look, let's be realistic. We are fighting a crisis, a war, that none of us can remember in terms of the way it's overwhelmed, not only this country, but the rest of the world, and we have to adopt policies that work under those circumstances. My bigger concern which you didn't touch on, is whether the money will be well spent Ah. in the next year or so. Uh, And that's my concern. I think they've got the policy right for now, but they're going to have to show, government is going to have to show, that they're spending the money in the right way as we get out of this crisis. Yeah, no, look, I'm, I'm in total agreement with you on that. And, I mean, the news that we got overnight,
0: that the National Health Service is about to employ 42 senior managers on average salaries of... £225,000 doesn't give much confidence. I'd love to see a really big debate about fundamental reform and an analysis why France and Germany get a better health return for, for, for the same level of expenditure. I really, really would. But back to the points about conservatism. Corporation tax is going up. Employers' national insurance is going up and taxes on dividends are going up. There are six million people out there, six million people running their own companies, six million people, some sole traders, six million people who actually want this government to use the opportunity of Brexit to lift the burden of tax and regulation off their back. And, frankly, we're seeing no regulatory reform of any kind and taxes going up. Isn't this the wrong message to business. Uh, and the second point I'd like to put to you, please, is I get the point that we had to, with furlough schemes and other things, borrow money at, at, at levels we've never done, frankly, outside of wartime. I get that. But rather than burdening business, rather than sending a very bad message to the rest of the world in terms of investing here, why not just scrap HS2 and save us the bother of putting up taxes?
1: I won't go down the line of HS2. We could debate that at length. on a Well, separate well, well, but it's a, it's, it's a fair proposition, isn't it? But there is a broader issue you are raising, and that is, are there alternatives? Are there quick fixes under what circumstances? And my view is we still have 8,000 people in hospital from COVID where there are 150 a day dying. We have 35 to 40,000 cases. We are not through COVID yet. And therefore we have to plan for the period beyond COVID. But to start suggesting that we can start dealing with regulation and all sorts of other things at the point when we are still dealing with the world's largest pandemic in our lifetimes, okay. really I think doesn't meet consideration. Right. So you're saying
0: that government simply is overwhelmed with and and you know you're quite right, it's an unprecedented situation. The government's too overwhelmed to do those things. All right, okay, if I accept that point, and 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 it's a, a perfectly reasonably and fairly put point. But raising taxes at all levels on employers, both small and large, is the wrong thing to be doing, particularly with parts of the private sector who've had a terrible economic time during this pandemic. It's the wrong solution at the wrong time for millions of those small businesses.
1: You have to do something, and the Labour Party at the moment is falling into a massive hole by saying, well, you're doing it wrong, but you haven't put an alternative. Um, And they have no idea of an alternative. Uh Uh, And you could criticise whatever policy is adopted. I've expressed just now concerns about what benefits one, one will get from the money coming in. But... We are still in the middle of a pandemic. We face enormous problems. And under those circumstances, I'm willing to give the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and the Secretary of State for Health the benefit of the doubt and say it's the right way at this moment, but you better get it right in terms of not only raising the money, but implementing the expenditure and controlling that expenditure. Okay. Thank you very much indeed,
0: Lord Hayward, for coming on and joining us here on GB News. Great to have you on as a guest. Please Good to see you. Me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, our attention now turns to another government department. Yes, it's the Home Office and Pretty Patel. So let's just get our bearings on this, shall we? Over 570 boats have been detected coming in to the UK thus far this year. There's one of them this morning being towed in Dover Harbour. 895 people one day this weekend. These are more pictures from today. 740 people the next day. On Tuesday, 295 into Dover. And 100 into Eastbourne, which is interesting. On Wednesday, 301. Today, it'll be 200 or more. There is, in fact, an escort en route. When I say escort, I mean the French Navy are escorting a boat into British waters as we speak and this is a big problem let's have a look at a map of a map of the french coast to give ourselves some idea of what's going on here because now what is happening is the boats so you can see you can see on that map the orange line that is the that is the dinghy that is currently being escorted by the french look where it took off from look how far south and west it took off from so even if the french spent the £54 million. wisely between Calais and Boulogne, you can see that actually the smugglers will find routes. They will come from Belgium, and as you can see from that map, they're coming from Le Touquet and further and further west. Priti Patel yesterday met her French counterpart. Uh, the meeting resulted in precisely nothing, uh, the French, Uh, are not going to do anything. The French are talking about some form of EU solution. Well, I don't think for Brexit Britain that's going to come particularly quickly. They're enjoying our level of discomfort over this. So Pretty has now come out with a big, tough statement, you know, front page in The Express. And we've heard these tough statements ever since August 2019 from the Home Secretary on this issue. But now she's going to turn back the votes. And it all looks very impressive in the newspapers. And lots of people that want this, uh, this crisis to end will say, hooray. I think this is the last throw of the dice from a Home Secretary who will be shuffled out of her position as and when government is reset by Boris Johnson. Because I don't believe, just as with every other pledge that she's made, I just don't believe that boats are going to get turned around and sent back. It is not an easy thing to do. Has she really, has she really got the courage to do it? And what are the risks in doing so? Well, joining me now to discuss this is Dr Chris Parry, former Royal Navy Rear Admiral, who served as Director General at the Ministry of Defence and as a NATO Commander. Chris, good evening, thank you for joining us. Hello, Nigel. So we have the example, don't we, of Tony Abbott, the Australian Prime Minister, they faced a very similar problem to us, albeit the distance from Indonesia to Australia was far greater than the width of the English Channel. The boats were bigger, the numbers on the boats were bigger, but he did in the end just put those boats under tow and send them straight back, tow them straight back to Indonesia. And I can't see, unless we do turn boats around or unless we do deport people who don't qualify as refugees, I can't see this stopping. And I've been saying now for over a year, as the numbers get bigger and bigger, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I've been proved right over and over and over. And the British public, as you well know, Chris, are getting angrier. This has now risen to the third biggest concern of voters in this country. So Priti Patel is right to say we should turn the boats back, but there are practical difficulties, aren't there, with turning around dinghies?
2: Yeah, this isn't going to work, Nigel. Um, any any practitioner at sea will tell you that any interaction at close quarters between small boats is going to result in people being tipped into the water or, or a tragedy occurring. And it'll only take one injury or death for the whole policy to fall down. Um, I think you're right. It is probably the last throw of the dice, not because of... Uh, Pretty Patel not trying. I think she has, actually, and so have her civil servants. It's just that national and international law, as it stands right now, doesn't allow you any wriggle room whatsoever. And unless we revise the strategy for how we defend our maritime border, and we've seen the failure of strategy in Afghanistan recently, it doesn't matter how good yeah. your tactics are on the yeah. ground, if you haven't got your strategy right, then I'm afraid you're doomed. And this is the case, I'm afraid, in the channel. It needs a complete revision of strategy. We need to say to ourselves, look, we've got an irresponsible partner next to us uh, in the form of France. They're not actually uh, putting up their responsibilities as a sovereign nation and controlling their offshore zone. They're simply dumping people into the water and actually heading, heading them towards Britain. Well, now, that is a fundamental threat to our security. Well, worse than that, and you may
0: not know this... Uh, but I showed a map the other evening on this show of a French naval vessel that escorted one of the migrant boats to within four miles of the Kent beaches. I mean, they may as well just, just take them straight across. I mean, Chris, what would you do? If, you know, and, and I do understand that turning around these boats in a channel does constitute some risk. I understand that. I accept that. But what would you do? What would your strategy be to stop this illegal um- trade?
2: It's very simple. Um, When we had a problem in Libya, we pushed our defenses right up to the coast of Libya. We stopped people getting in the water. Uh, Obviously, it's a bit more out of sight, out of mind there. But we have the technology to be able to detect these boats assembling on the French coast. We have the ability to be able to tell the French when they're coming off the coast. And the French have the ability and the capacity to stop it. Um, So there's a political will issue. There's a technological issue. But with me, I'd have a, a drone up 24 hours a day. Uh, in the middle of the channel, I'd be looking into France uh, with electro-optics, with radar, and intercepting mobile phone calls, and I'd be saying to the French, they're departing from here now. And every time the French fail to do it, I'd name and shame them. Uh, they've lost control of their own offshore zone, uh, and we shouldn't be putting up with such an irresponsible neighbour. Uh, this is the sort of behaviour you expect from a third world country, not from a, a major European power. OK. So you push the border right up to the French coast and yeah. we do the surveillance of our own uh, waters and we start putting pressure on the French both financially and politically in order to get them to uh, behave themselves. OK. Well, you know, I think it might work.
0: It certainly would make a very big difference. Chris Parry, thank you very much indeed for joining us and, you know, Pretty Patel keeps making statement after statement. None of them come to fruition. Uh, I just don't see... You know, the boats that Tony Abbott turned around were quite big, stable uh, fibreglass and wooden boats, and these are dinghies. Um, If we did it, and we did it for a few days, it would stop the boats from coming, but there is. There would be increased risk to life. I accept that. I understand that. We we have to do something. In a moment, we will talk about Winston Churchill being cancelled. Higher taxes, a bigger role for the state. It's rather like blue Labour, more than it's the Conservative Party. And I've been asking you in debating, are the Conservatives still Conservative? Under Boris Johnson, I genuinely don't Think so. Some reaction from you, the viewers. Pat on email says, Nigel, don't destroy the Tory party because there's nothing to replace it with. Oh, all right, OK, Pat, they're absolutely useless, but I won't criticise them. MJ on email says, You cannot be the benefit office for the world and expect to be a low-tax party. We have lost the plot and the future of our children is more uncertain than at any time since 1945. A bit of pessimism there. Dave on email says, you spent a lot of time criticizing this government and Boris in particular. This being the case, isn't it time you put up or shut up? By being put up, form a new party, lead the party and see where the electorate agree. Well, look, you could say that to every single person in journalism, couldn't you? You could say to every single commentator that works for any national newspaper that ever criticizes any party or any leader, why don't you form a new party? Perhaps if we had proportional representation, that might be an easier proposition. As it is, it isn't. I did, Boris, a massive favour back in 2019 by standing down 300 candidates against the Conservatives because I wanted to make sure that the Liberal Democrats and others did not encroach upon him. I didn't want there to be a second referendum. And I will praise Boris Johnson and this government to the rafters when I think they're getting it right. But frankly, I think he's turned his back on many voters. And remember, just one issue we've been discussing tonight, taking back control of our borders. People thought with Brexit and with Boris winning in December 2019, we would actually get a grip on legal and illegal immigration. And this matters to people. Oh, I know the London media can't bear even discussing it. It's all too awkward at Notting Hill dinner parties. But I promise you people care. Legal net migration is still running at 300,000 people a year, and illegal illegal immigration, well, you can see it, coming across the channel every single day. And he's failing on these things. And as for putting up taxes on struggling small businesses as they're trying to recover from a pandemic, that is just not a conservative thing to do. Angie on email says, The Tory party is still Tory, but Boris is not. He's too liberal and surrounds himself with yes-men and women. It's time he was replaced. And Tony finally says, I do not believe that the Tories would have put up taxes without the pandemic. Surely that stumps Nigel's argument. Well, I tell you what, I still insist that in a crisis, of course, you have to do things you hadn't foreseen. I genuinely think the £150 billion, right, That's nearly four times the amount that the the tax raise is for the next three years. 36 billion, these increases in tax and dividends will raise over the next three years. 150 billion is being spent on HS2 so we can all get to Manchester 20 minutes more quickly. Why? If you're sitting on a train to Manchester, it's actually not that unpleasant. Capacity is the problem, not speed. Anyway, enough of HS2. We will discuss that again in depth at another time. Now, my what the Farage moments today. Well, the first one is Cressida Dick, because reports say the government has offered the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Cressida Dick, a two-year extension to her term in office. The decision has been made by the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, in consultation with Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and Downing Street. This is the Met Chief who encouraged her officers to take the knee to protesting mobs that wanted to defund the police force. This is the head of the Metropolitan Police that saw so many prominent public figures, be they from the worlds of music, be they from the arts, be they from the military, be they from politics... Um, publicly named and shamed, their lives publicly ruined with some of the most horrendous allegations of sexual abuse and worse, uh, for it to turn out that none of it was actually true. Uh, this is the head of the Metropolitan Police that has overseen rising gang crime and knife crime in London and I think I'm right in saying has lost the confidence of many People in London, and I think it would be far better to do something radical and to get somebody else. Talking of Conservative leaders, Winston Churchill was rather a well known leader of the Conservative Party, but would you believe this? Woke chiefs at a charity set up to honour Sir Winston Churchill have changed the name of the organisation, erased him from their website. The Winston Churchill Memorial Trust has rebranded itself, the Churchill Fellowship, and removed every picture of the heroic wartime Prime Minister from its website. A racism disclaimer is now repeated across various pages. And this is an organisation that last year managed to raise £1.3 million. Uh, The the idea is they sponsor people uh, to have scholarships uh, and to go and study, and all of that, of course, is very good. But uh, they do tend to pay uh, the people that run the organisation pretty handsomely, Um, and I think to change the name of an organisation set up uh, to honour this man, uh, and one of the inspirations behind all of this was indeed the late Prince Philip, I think it's absolutely disgraceful. Um, About time, perhaps, some of these people learnt that the attempt to paint Churchill as a racist... I mean, the man that actually stood alone against Nazism, and without which I've no doubt people on the continent and, and, and here would probably have been speaking German and living in intolerable conditions, perhaps for 50 years or more. The man that did more to defeat that, to defeat extremism, that believed in free, open democracy and debate. Now, the idea that that man's reputation is now being willfully destroyed, this is what... We call it cancel culture, but actually it's the virus, the virus of Marxism coming back. What Marxism seeks to do is to destroy everything about a country, everything about its culture, everything about its history, to bring down its institutions and replace it with the grand new socialist order. It has been tried in one or two countries around the world, and every single time it's been a total disaster that has led to repressive regimes. Uh, And we've got to stand up and fight this. Did Churchill say some things in contexts that today we would find difficult. Yes, anybody that lived in previous times would have said things we find difficult today. It's called history. I've no doubt, in years to come, there'll be generations beyond us who find some of the things that we thought and did to be reprehensible. But this attempt to demonise heroes like Churchill and Nelson, who I pointed out last week, this is all about bringing this country down. Now, I have never had much regard for European politicians. (laughs) I've always said uh, that Michel Barnier was unfailingly polite, but very haughty, and I had many conversations with him in his office, in the coffee room, debates in the parliamentary chamber, and he was always the high priest of the European Union, of the European project. Uh, he, He kept repeating time and again, even Farage can't say that there's any benefit to Britain leaving the European Union. Well, I'd said to him that it was freedom, liberty, democracy, the ability to make our own law, all of which he thought was valueless. Now, I want the Farage moment, perhaps the best of the day, is that, as you know, and we discussed it last week, Barnier is now throwing his hat in the ring for the French presidency. He started making tough comments about immigration. But yesterday, Michel Barnier said this. Get ready. We must regain our legal sovereignty in order to no longer be subject to the judgments of the of this European Court or the European Court of Human Rights and we'll propose a referendum in September on the question of immigration. I mean, can you believe it? Barnier, the man that did his utmost to stop Brexit, the man that stands rigid to attention when the European anthem is playing, now talks... About the restoration of French sovereignty from French courts. You really could not make it up. And yes, as we discussed with Lord Haywood earlier, something like 25, getting on maybe for 30 million, a billion pounds, is going into the National Health Service over the course of the next few years. It's being done, we're told, it's being funded, we're told, by the increases to national insurance and dividend taxes. It's being done to cut a waiting list of 5.5 million, which some have warned, including Sajid Javid, could rise as high as 13 million unless we get a grip and do something. And Boris Johnson has really tied his political career now to the National Health Service. We are the party of the NHS, said Boris Johnson in the House of Commons yesterday with Keir Starmer looking around as if he's got nowhere to go. Now, that might be quite clever. Oxford Union debating politics. Wear the clothes of the other side, and it leaves them nowhere to go. But Boris Johnson's entire career is now staked on the NHS, and as Lord Haywood said earlier, it all depends how you spend the money. All of which, I thought, made me really think this morning when a story broke that the NHS is recruiting 42 new executive managers on salaries of up to £270,000 a year at an average of £223,000 a year, with more than £9 million being spent employing chief executives of integrated care boards. So you wonder, don't you, of this about 30000000000 billion that'll go to the National Health Service, how much of it will get wasted? How much of it will get very badly spent? And what will happen to those massive waiting lists? And I really worry that all of this is being done into a national health service when perhaps what we ought to be doing is having an open, honest debate about whether reforming it might give us a better health delivery for our buck, as it does in France and Germany and many other European countries. But Boris Johnson's government are not contemplating reform. They're happy to keep putting money into a system that is not giving us the best return for our money. And none of that in any way is a slight at the huge number of men and women that do their absolute damnedest and work their hardest within the NHS to give us the best outcomes. It's just the system isn't delivering value for money. It's like pouring money into a black hole. This needs reform, not just pouring perhaps some good money after what may be, and what may turn into be, rather bad outcomes. In a moment, I'll be Talking Pines with extreme explorer Adrian Hayes. Well, we do like action men here on Talking Pints, so we've certainly got one today for you, because joining me now is Adrian Hayes, a British record-breaking adventurer and author. Adrian, welcome to Talking Pints. Nigel, cheers. Cheers, very good to see you. Now, I know you've made a few documentaries and things, but a lot of people, <coughs> despite the things that you've done, a lot of people might not know what your achievements have been. So let's just get this straight. You were an army officer... Did a bit of time in special forces, and this obviously gave you a taste for adventure.
3: Yeah, although I started when I left school at sixteen. To be honest, I left, you left school, school at, at sixteen. Five GCSEs. You know, one was art, one was RE. and just went travelling the world for seven years. You're you a dropout, yeah? really? Uh, yes, I think let's call it. Now. <laughs> I took a year out, which lasted about seven, and then thought, you know. And I was, I was farming around the world and things and doing it, skydive venturing. And I thought, there's, there's an organisation, paid to do this. It's called the British Army. So then yep. I joined 2-1 SS and then joined the Gurkhas. So I went to Sandhurst and somehow got through Sandhurst with my five GCSEs. Because uh, getting into Sandhurst without academic qualifications now, I thought it's, it's quite difficult, isn't it? it? It is now. I think probably uh, odd bods, off-piece people like me probably wouldn't get in. But... Uh, but, yeah, got there, then joined the brigade and had a fantastic nine years. I mean, absolutely marvellous. They're fantastic troops and, uh, and the camaraderie, the, the, the cohesion we still got today is, is quite incredible.
0: How do you feel about the guys that, that, that served and, and thousands of amputees from Afghanistan, Iraq? Yeah. How
3: do you, I mean, how are these guys feeling at the moment? Look, you know, it, it, it's a it's a it's a tricky thing. It's a very sensitive issue because I always say, look, whatever we do in any policy, there's choice and consequences. There's always going to be. When Joanna, Lund, I mean, fantastic campaign to bring uh, Gurkha pensions here, but of course, we then had pensions in their seventies arrive at Heathrow Airport with nothing, and you know, and, and so this is the sort of you've got to weigh up everything when you take these yeah. Uh, decisions.
0: Yeah, but the extreme adventure. So just give us an Give the audience an idea of the. Fairly
3: extraordinary. I know what they are, but share with us where you've been. I'm I'm feeling embarrassed now. But no, look, it's um, it's just a few long camping trips. So I've been mountaineering (laughs) since I was about 17, 16. When I I left out. So so, so Everest? Yeah. yeah. How was that? Easy to. Uh, It was pretty hard. Yeah, it's pretty hard. Um, But it was superseded by K2, which was just. Now, that really is the tough one, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's far tougher, far steeper, far more dangerous, uh, and the numbers speak for themselves. Yeah. Very few people get up K two, um, whereas thousands now get up Everest. It's a massive tourist Um downstairs. Well, you know, and that, this is you know, I was I was hoping to ask me how's the venture going uh, today, but also the, the poles. Uh, I trekked to, to both poles and the length of Greenland. The length of Greenland is probably the proudest thing I've ever done. Um, the North Pole is the hardest thing on this planet, and it, it's never done. that. it's not been done from the Russian side for about. 12 years and Canada, side for about seven years because the ice is just too, too thin. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an extreme... It, it got down about minus 60. I mean, we talk about climate change, global. it got pretty cold and uh, pretty horrendous, actually.
0: And so Antarctica, I mean, also, you know, visions in my yeah. mind of Scott and Shackleton and... I mean, it, it looks to be... I mean, so bleak, it's almost unbelievable.
3: Do you know what? It, everyone who goes to Antarctic South Pole, it, it touches them. It's the most amazing place I've ever been in the world, full stop, period. Um, and Because humans haven't spoiled it. And it just, it really does, I've been a couple of times, I, want, I, I wanted to join the British Antarctic Survey when I was 16 and 17, but it took me about 25 years to get back there. But um, amazing place. I always say to everyone, you know, if you've got a chance, just go down on a cruise ship. It's quite incredible. A lot
0: of people, a lot of adventurers and explorers and people like you, a lot of them have you know, they've, they've lost fingers through frostbite and goodness knows what. I mean, have you, have you come through all of this relatively unscathed?
3: I can assure you all 21 digits are intact in the full backyard. <laughs> but, uh, no... I,
0: it's a very <laughs> army arse.
3: <after. laughs> I had a bit of frostbite in my nose, a bit of frostbite. But, um, you know, you've got to uh, look after yourself. It's, it's the classic, you know, uh, um, passage in the event of oxygen decompression: compression, get, look after yourself, then, then look after others. So you've got to take care of your own personal... Uh, fitness and health and, and hygiene.
0: And are you still doing these crazy things?
3: Well, actually, I, I had to tip, put it on hold uh, four years ago. And I, I was living in Dubai for quite a few years. I was selling <laughs> Airbuses buses uh, and various things yeah, out there. Had... Actually, But I've been you know, my own company for... for you've been a years. businessman as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I came back to bring up my teenage daughter. And uh, I've I got to mention Charlotte, which is probably harder than climbing Everest <laughs> K2 and walking the North Pole put together. That's why I'm looking so stressed. I didn't have grey hair before I did this.
0: <laughs> but we understand the motivations... Of wanting to bring up children well. But what are the motivations? What is it that drives people to want to go to the polls, to want to climb K2? What is it? I mean, we all like little challenges in life. What is it that pushes you to say, right, I'm gonna cast aside everything else for months at a time, you yeah. know, uh, family, uh, <coughs> business advancement. I mean, it's, you know, you're making quite a big sacrifice in many ways to go and do these things.
3: Yeah, and I and I, I wrote it. And I think, look, to be honest, and I, with due respect to anyone who's done this, that you don't climb Everest to show others that they too can achieve their dreams. You don't walk to North Pole to raise awareness of climate change. You don't row across the... the, the and taught the Atlantic to raise money for an orphanage in Kenya. If you're really passionate about things, you know, go and become a coach, a scientist, or go and work in the orphanage. You do it for yourself, and there's nothing wrong. You do it for your internal significance. But what has changed, and, it's what, and even the last four years, I know COVID has put everything on hold, but what, what I'm finding now is it, it's becoming more and more about this. It's becoming... And the mountain is the just tip of the iceberg. It's, yeah. We've got this subconscious need to show our worthiness the selfies on social media. And it's I mean, That's it's not dr- for us, is it? Or is it? Is, is it us? It's us. It's not for our own, in a sense, of well-being. It, it's the external recognition, yeah. respect, and I'm going to use the F word, you know, the, 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 the fame word. And, and, and I think... And the pressure of these things... When I, I do a lot of speaking to schools. and um, The mental health crisis we've got in, Simone Biles, Biles on the Olympics, yeah. she was on Twitter every single day. I say the biggest thing you can do is stop living your life on social media, because the pressure we get feel to, to do these things. So this is why I'm, I'm cautious about what the adventuring world is coming. I think we're going to be, furious few years' time, we're going to be uh, spending as much time avoiding drones as we are avalanches, because uh-huh. everyone's got their drone footage and posting these updates. Yeah, so the, a- next, the next trip I do will be no social media, just go for the escape, the setting the goal, and really breathe the air and, and really just, just enjoy the mountain.
0: Now, you made a comment a moment ago about the North Pole and about the ice and saying the ice is far less stable, (coughs) and you believe thinner than it was a few years ago. We can call that climate change, we can call it many, many things, but you feel yourself that you have witnessed significant changes going on?
3: Yeah, look, more than pretty, pretty you know, anyone looking at the show or pretty much anyone in Britain, I've witnessed climate change. I got very wet in the process of, of ice walking to the North Pole, which is now about a metre thick. It used to be five metres thick. I worked with Denmark's top ice scientist on our Greenland vertical crossing. I took ice core samples and, and everything. So I know I know a lot about the subject. However, But Antarctica,
0: Antar- we've seen some different ice. Yeah, trees. on the East I Antarctic mean, is, I mean, In fact, we've actually seen ice moving further northwards in, over the last decade. We in some, have. In some parts.
3: The modelling, as we well know, on some other things, isn't <laughs> always accurate. So I know it's, it's happening. I believe it's happening. Where I'm cautious uh, is that I. I'm going to go on a rant now. I'm going to. Climate change. People over a drink. People do often. Yeah, have a drink before. Please have a sip. But, but cli- the thing is, where I get where I get a problem. The problem with climate change activism is it's all about climate. And what I say is, climate change didn't cause carbon dioxide emissions to reach 420 parts per million. It didn't cause sulphur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide. Um, ground level ozone, particle pollution. It didn't cause the toxic waste, the chemicals, the pesticides in our rivers, our, our lakes, our seas, our ocean, depleting fish stocks. It didn't cause the depletion of forest, the forests, the rainforests, the grasslands for biomass, for palm oil, for development, for everything, and so on, so on, so on, so on. Climate change didn't cause that. And yet, we're, to- so we're taking that it's the only threat
0: that we face around right, the world. That's right. We, uh, do you know what? I've said this so many times. We focus obsessively on carbon dioxide, and we've forgotten so many other things that are going on. So I'm with you on that.
3: Yeah. And yet, yeah, but I bet you've been called a denier for saying that. No, no, I, I say, look, I, I'm, I acknowledge, and I've witnessed it, but I say yeah. this single risk, climate change, single issue, carbon dioxide, single remedy, zero carbon, I think doesn't, is rather nice. It doesn't naive. solve the other problems. It doesn't solve... Take the, the rainforest for f- yeah. The amount of the, the size of the UK every year is being destroyed, OK? And that is the lungs. everywhere, Every environmentalist will agree, this is the lungs of the earth, and yet we're destroying this. Now, carbon, zero carbon, everything, big tech can praise all they want, virtue signaling about we're doing this, we're doing this. Mm. What's going to happen without all that production for, our, for what we need? And the two things that, that, that come down to it is our increasing consumption, A, and B, the increasing numbers of well, us isn't consuming. That, isn't that really the point? Well, and, and, and this is where we get into problem, because the Many environmentalists will say that, although it's been distracted. They've all gone on climate, climate, climate. They refuse to mention this one. And what I say to them, look, I, I get you. The, the Mongolian shepherd is not causing anywhere near the consumption that we do uh, in, in, the, in the developed world. However, you cannot add 80 million people, the size of the population of Germany, mm. to the Earth's population every year without there being impacted.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think when I was born, there were about 2.5 billion people in the world. I think we're now pushing 8 billion, aren't we?
3: So what do we do? Well, um, this is where I, I think... I mean, I mean, you know, I
0: agree with you that it is the massive increase in people and consumption that has led to a whole host of problems, <clears throat> but identifying a problem is one thing. But wh-
3: is there anything we can... Well, do? Well, this is what I like to be a bit positive. You, you have Professor Carol Sikora on the show a few times. I mean, he's the positive professor. He's so, brilliant. He's brilliant. There are, there are ways, but like I say we've got to get off this single risk, single issue, single remedy, and dare I say it, in COVID, it was COVID, infections, lockdowns, that's it. You know, it's a, so we've got the same thing. So we ignored undiagnosed cancer, etc. Et it's, et
0: so it's, it's a very the same similar model. principle,
3: isn't it? So what, what I'd like to say first is you've got to have a clear objective. I mean, the UN, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, 17, they are a load of hot air. You know, good health and hygiene. Well, what? that's not a clear goal. I would like to grab the <laughs> WHO, the UN and the Cabinet and give them a, an objective lesson a whole morning on objective setting for starters. Um, Tech. But tech can Help. Look, Anything from painting our roofs white to uh, carbon capture to nuclear power. Again, the environmentalists ah, are the I'm working with the leadership team of the Rolls-Royce SMR, which is about to sort of launch. You know, this is what we need. You cannot keep tech, because no matter how much tech, tech can never keep pace of our increasing demand for resources. Mm. But the best thing in the, in the developed world, I, I'm finding positives... We're becoming more realising that stuff doesn't make us happy. And, you know, I I see... I was at the rock climbing wall Tuesday night. There was hundreds of young people in their teens and 20s. We've discovered the art of picnics, which I've been forgotten since we were kids. Um, You know, 14 of us went to (laughs) the pub Friday night. (laughs) Coffee shops are booming, and I think we're realising that that stuff doesn't make us happy. Um, In the developing world, I'm a patron of Population Matters and Chase Africa. Um, It's not rich Western countries telling Africa... African people not have children. They are crying <laughs> out for family planning aid, the, the women of Eastern Africa. And I think one thing, if we can reduce child mortality, child mortality, it would reduce the, the, the desire to have more children. Ah. If we'd spent 5% of the money we have spent on lockdowns, on reducing child mortality and all the other diseases in Africa, you'd be on to a, a, a winning... And do you situation. genuinely think... That if child, well, it's a difficult subject. This I know, but if we
0: if we reduce child mort- mortality in Africa, that they genuinely would have fewer children.
3: A, a whole combination of things, which comes back to the sustainability argument. You know, people, planet, profit, and that's that whole the, the, which you know I'm, the, I'm I'm ambassador on sustainability, economic growth, yeah. society, environment. You've got to put them all together. Um, family planning aid. Uh, child mortality, all the other diseases, empowerment of women, educational women. It's not us, not Chase Africa doing it, it's the women of East Africa begging for the help.
0: And what about the women and the men living in this country who have listened to what you've had to say and say, yeah, actually this is a much more balanced, rounded argument, rather than the hysteria we get from Extinction Rebellion, which is all about CO2. What can they do? Is there, are there
3: any little things they can do? in this country i just just realized that buying stuff doesn't make you happy you know yeah. and every study it is about your relationships As I, said, I i'm feeling quite positive that we're having a changing sort of uh, evolution of, of, of these things and you know just just realize to say the sustainability argument that the three pillars economy society and environment they're all linked what we do in one will affect all three and we can't solve problems in one without looking at all you three can. together Rather what you than going, a... you've
0: gone from being a you've gone from being a school dropout to a <laughs> soldier to an extreme adventurer to being somewhat of a philosopher about the world and its future.
3: Yeah, look, and I'm I'm, I'm I'm as passionate about the world as. as your dreadlock Extinction Rebellion protesters just <laughs> down, down the street. And fair play them, But I think it's, it's a, a slight naivety. That, and every, as I said right at the beginning of the show, everything we do is a trade-off. And I wish politicians would get this right. There's no free money tree. There's no magic wand. What mm. we do will have an effect somewhere. Be honest with people. So if you put all this money... I mean, Bjorn Lombok the Copenhagen yeah. consensus, he says this money, trillions of dollars that we're putting into zero carbon could be better used for technology. Yeah. There's various ways in well. that. There's no magic money tree, that comes
0: from our philosopher this evening, (laughs) Adrian Hayes, my guest on Talking Pints, and thank you for being here. (laughs) Food for thought. Well, now it's time for Barrage to Farage, where you send in your questions and I do not look at them before I read them out. Let's give it a go. John, on email, asks me, Nigel, during your period as an MEP... Oh, I thought i put all that behind me. Was there any one EU regulation or law brought in that you were particularly pleased with? No. And I never voted for an EU law in nearly 21 years of being there. If I thought it might be actually in the right direction, I generally abstained on the basis that once it got in the hands of the local petty bureaucrats, they'd actually spoil the original purpose of it. Look, we have to have rules by which a society lives, but I think the EU represented that massive over-regulatory model. But the key was this, not whether it was good law or bad law, the key was this, there was nothing we, the electorate, could do in general elections to change any one of those laws. So whether we have good or bad laws today, at least we can vote people out and vote new people in and change the laws by which we live. Alan, on email, asks, Mm -hmm. you broke thousands of UKIP hearts when you left. How did you feel? Well, you know what, Um, I was a founder member of UKIP. I... Really, from 1996, dedicated my entire life to it. I gave up pretty much everything for you, Kip. Uh, business, uh, quite a lot of personal costs, financial cost. Um, I put my heart and soul into it because I knew that it was the only mechanism by which we could get a sustained campaign to threaten the establishment, to make sure the people of this country got a vote on what, what came to be known as Brexit. Uh, after we achieved that... I thought I'd done my job, to be frank. Um, And then I saw UKIP move in a direction that I didn't think was the right direction. So, yeah, it was with a heavy heart that I left it and then formed the Brexit party thereafter. But you know what? In 100 years' time, kids at school will read about this new political party that did, as I predicted, cause an earthquake in British politics. And you know what? Overall, I'm pretty proud of that. Last one. John on email says, Who would you most like to interview on... Talking Pints. Well, I'm going to have to say, I'm going to have to say, it's Tim Martin of Weatherspoons because I like going into his pubs. Tim, come on Talking Pints before too long. I'll be here on Sunday morning with the political correction, back here on Monday at 7.